The joy of the Lord is our strength. And Father, it is joyous to be in your presence this morning. Even though many come with burdens of various kinds, certainly with uh, concerns uh, that may be facing them in one way or another. But Lord, as your people, we stand <clears throat> in your presence with absolute trust in you as the God who loves us, who cares for us, and who will guide us and meet our every need. And Father, for those of our number who are away today, we trust that your hand is upon them too. And we're thankful, Lord, for those who have traveled and you have brought, brought back to us safely. And Lord, we ask now that this morning you will speak to us again through the Word of God. It is your message to our hearts, and may our hearts be receptive to hear that message. We ask that you will glorify yourself here today, this morning. Not only here in this class, but in the service which is transpiring this hour, and the many other Sunday School classes, we trust you to do your good work because you know every heart, you know every need. And Father, may no one walk away from this campus this morning or this afternoon without having had an encounter with God. Lord, I pray that our faith will be strengthened and we'll give you the praise for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study in the book of Numbers, we're reading various events and, encou and encounters that sometimes cause us to wonder. But again, as uh, we have noted before, if we look carefully and think about it with some perspective, we realize that it's really in some ways uh, sort of a description of human life in, in any uh, time and in any place, even our lives today. We've been looking at Israel as they have come out of the land of Egypt and they have moved into the Sinai and they've been brought to the place where they were to enter the land of Canaan and they rejected God's direction there and as a result they have been condemned to wander in the wilderness for another 38 years and while they're doing this wandering, in fact they have just begun the wandering, we discover that already there is a challenge to the leadership which God has given. Leadership which has been so effective for the 18 months or however many months it's been up to this time is being challenged by these men that we read about last time and will continue to read about today. Korah was a Levite and Korah was apparently offering a challenge to Aaron's high priesthood and associated with him were 250 men and we assume by the events which transpired that they were probably Levites or at least mostly so who are standing fast with him as his loyal supporters and certainly they're hoping that somehow they too will receive a better position. Now Moses has already said to them, I mean, aren't you blessed in being Levites where you already have this opportunity to minister to the people by serving the tabernacle? Why is this that, that you want even more? And so God gave Moses this test and that was the following day after the... Uh, confrontation. Aaron would come before the tabernacle with his censer, burning incense before the Lord, and Korah and his 250 were also to appear before the tabernacle, burning incense, and Moses said, we'll let God choose. Does he continue to want Aaron to serve as high priest, or perhaps has he chosen Korah? 
and his followers. And that was where we left them last time as they were approaching the tabernacle ready for this test. In the meantime, leaving that scenario, we have Moses going to confront two members of the tribe of Reuben who have challenged his leadership, Dathan and Abiram. They wouldn't come to Moses when he summons them, so he was going to go and confront them where they were. And so that's the point at which we find ourselves today. So if you can kind of visualize, here's the tabernacle, and Aaron and Korah and his followers are coming to the front of the tabernacle burning incense, while Moses is going off now to confront Dathan and Abiram. Verse 25 of 16th chapter of Numbers. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be swept away in all their sin. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the doorway of their tents, along with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into shell, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. The test was clear. It was not some minor test that, you know, you, you could just think, well, possibly they passed, possibly they didn't pass. Uh, this wasn't going to be a kind of a D minus, you know, F plus situation here. Uh, this was going to be a very obvious pass-fail situation. The test was clear in that, first of all, Moses said, if these two men live out their lives and die the normal course, in the normal course of, of living, you know, in the 40 years that all the older ones were going to die out, all those 20 years and older were going to die out in the wilderness in the next 40 years anyway, if, if they go on from this situation and they die a normal death, then I am no longer the leader of Israel. But if God does something un heard of before by the people of Israel. Beyond the possibility of human manipulation, what could Moses do to make it look like the ground opened up and swallowed people? You know? He wasn't Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. <laughs> then, if this happened, God was confirming Moses' leadership. Can you imagine? When this test fell on the ears of the people who were listening, they would... <gasps> You know, a gasp of incredulity certainly must have rolled through the congregation as they heard the terms of the test. I think we could say that Moses is out on a very long limb of faith here. I know that we sometimes have a hard time when we face a very serious situation praying that God will do something miraculous in this situation and believing he's really going to do it. You know, can you imagine this situation? <laughs> Uh, well, certainly Moses, of course, didn't come up with this on his own. 
I, even though it doesn't say specifically in the passage, we have to assume, I think, that through prayer, Moses received the word of the Lord as to what he was going to do, and he simply was God's spokesperson here. But who had ever heard of the earth opening up and swallowing people? Well, in verse 30, Moses said, this is an entirely new thing. That could mean, of course, that the earth had never opened up and swallowed anybody before, whether they'd heard of it or not. And that's very possible. We don't hear of it too much, even our day. The statement at the end of verse 30, where it says there, and they descend alive into Sheol. We, I, I think we have to look at this as not necessarily being a theological statement. Even if it is, I think we can only imply a negative connotation to it because Sheol means the abode of the dead without any plus, minus, good, bad, you know, heaven, hell connotation to the word. In many Old Testament passages, Sheol is used to mean nothing more than simply the grave. They, they went to Sheol, meaning they went into the grave. Now, the King James Version, if you happen to be looking at it today, which if you are, you probably have a hard time following me because I'm reading the, the uh, New American Standard and always have been. The King James Version translates Sheol here as hell. Now, they do that simply because looking at the situation, we have to assume that because they were in direct violation of the, of the revealed will of God, because they were rebels against God, that when they perished, they went into the portion of Sheol reserved for the wicked. But the express meaning of the word here, I think, cannot be pushed beyond grave for two reasons. First of all, it says they went alive into Sheol. And I, I think you'll have a hard time finding any scriptural support for people going alive into hell. Now, we, we've heard of Elijah and Enoch going alive into heaven, but I think they did go through a translation in the process. But you never hear of anybody going alive into hell. And secondly, I don't think things can go to hell. You know, I think only souls can go to hell. I don't think things can go to hell. And the implication in this passage is that everything that they had, the tent and everything that was in it, also went into Sheol. So we, I think we have to assume that this is the grave. Yeah, pit, pit, hell, in, in, the new, in the New Testament portion of it, it would be. So we have this situation. This is what Moses has set up. This is, that is what God has set up through Moses. This is the impending situation. Well, let's, let's find out what happens, beginning in verse 31. Verses 31 to 35 are, are very dramatic and pointed verses. Then it came about, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I think we could say that this was a cataclysmic moment. This passage records certainly one of the most dramatic events of all history because it deals with God's people. And it deals specifically with uh, the plan of salvation that God is in the process of establishing for 
all of the human race. Now whether God triggered an earthquake which in response opened the earth and closed the earth, you know, it's rather immaterial. Certainly as God opened the earth and closed the earth, there was an earthquake that was associated with it. So which came first in this? There's no way to explain what happened except to understand it exactly as Moses claimed it to be, a direct action of judgment by the Almighty. And none of the people of Israel could say, Moses, that was a sleight of hand. You know, you just made it look that way. No, obviously they couldn't do it because the Israelites stood around and witnessed the ground opening and these people plummeting, screaming into this chasm, which then closed over them. Dust rising, tents gone, everything that was belonging to Dathan, Abiram, and Korah and their supporters was gone, completely out of sight. I don't think this event took very long. I think it was a matter of seconds, probably, in duration. It's the reaction it created, though, was very interesting. As we read in the passage there, the people ran from the scene, screaming. I think they ran in all directions, except towards where the crack had been, screaming and yelling and saying, we're going to perish. Why were they so fearful? Well, of course, one was certainly the natural human reaction. If you saw something like that happening, you'd be a bit fearful too, probably. And I mean, they never witnessed anything like it before, and, and it, the whole scene just scared them to death, and, and they ran the natural, you know, fight or flight uh, that's built into us. And, but I think there was more to it than that, because <clears throat> as, they, as they ran, they said, the earth may swallow us up. I think that was an expression of sensed guilt. It was an expression of the fact that they knew that God could rightly punish them if he so chose, because they were not guiltless as they stood there before Moses and God. Because in their hearts, even though they may not have expressed it openly, it seems that the people were supporting the idea of replacing Moses and Aaron. The people seemed to be supportive of Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, and, and we, you can see that in the text as you read through this chapter. It's because the congregation seems to gather with these, and it's as if everybody wants to see these men replaced because it's sort of as the scripture says, those who love darkness hate the light, and Moses and Aaron represent the light of God. And as we're going to see as we move a little bit further along, I mean, they as soon as as soon as all this is over with, the very next day the people come to Moses and Aaron and they say, you guys are responsible for this. You know, and you think, ah. <laughs> you know, what does God have to do? In their hearts, they knew they were guilty. But if you can picture this, Moses stood there unmoved in the sense of fear, probably only with a heart, heavy heart that these men had to die and their families. Moses was serene through it all, not running back, frightened, because he knew it was going to happen because he had heard the word of the Lord. I think Moses' serenity was based in the same truth that caused Paul to pen the words that he knew whom he believed and was persuaded that he was able to keep him against that day. 
Uh, Moses may not have thought those actual words, but that concept was in his mind. He knew the Lord, and he knew he was right before God, and therefore in the midst of calamity he could remain peaceful and serene because he was safe in the hand of, of God. One of the questions, though, that arises out of this is the question, I think, that is rooted in the statement here which says, well, let me back up into ver the previous verses, uh, 27. So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Byram, and Dathan and Byram came out and stood in the doorway of their tents along with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. The question that arises here is why do, does the entire family of Dathan and Abiram die? Why are they all destroyed in this horrendous event? Why are they included in this judgment? Well, the answer is not obvious. The Old Testament clearly teaches that, and we've read this in other contexts before, that each person is responsible for his own sin. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, we read, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So it can't be just a you know, sin of the father destroying the family. But there's another important Old Testament principle I think we need to look at. We've touched on it uh, back when we were studying the book of Exodus, but I'd like to go there again. The 34th chapter of Exodus we read in verses 6 and 7, this is when, of course, Moses has that dramatic encounter with, with God. And then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God is characterized by loving kindness and mercy. These are attributes of the living God. It isn't something he puts on or something he has to remind himself to be. This is what God is. It is his character to love and to be merciful. And to all those who repent, Forgiveness is an automatic flow. Genuine repentance always receives genuine forgiveness from God. But to those who continuously and staunchly resist God and reject His mercy, there is no alternative but judgment. There is no alternative. Often, such a resistance to God becomes a family trait. It is passed on from father to son and mother to daughter. And it becomes characteristic of the family from generation to generation. And of course, God's desire is to build holiness in Israel. This is his holy people. And his holy people have to be purified by cutting out the cancers of sin. And so he does it by removing, and at times, he removes whole families that are infected with rebellion, as he apparently did in this incident. That's what it definitely appears to be. But we also have to realize that there's a sincere possibility here that the family was in collusion with the rebel. 
It wasn't as if the father of the family went off and did this and the mother was grieving and the children were grieving. It's very possible they were all in part, in part taking part in his rebellion, that they knowingly encouraged him in rebellion, that they aided and abetted what he was doing and covered him whenever it was necessary. I think what we have to assume is that if little children who are, you know, below the age where they can be responsible for understanding what's going on here and participating in any way, or if there were members of the family who did not agree with the rebellion and they did suffer the consequences of the perpetrator, I think we have to believe that God is the God of all justice and fairness. And he judges the heart. And as they stand before him in eternity, they will receive their you know, just compensation. They will be forgiven. And they will be walking in eternity with God. No matter what it appears to us, our faith is that God is eternally fair. And of course, sometimes we wonder at, you know, we, we might say, but it's not fair if a child should die for the sin of his father. But that's because we view everything as if this life is the most important thing, which it is not. I mean, if, if this life were so important, uh, the, whole, the whole plague of abortion which has swept over this country would be probably viewed with even greater disdain than it is, particularly by, by Christians. I mean, it is an awful thing, and it needs to be dealt with. But at least we have the knowledge that these children are with God and, and eternally with Him, and, and of course, to be with God, as Paul would say, is better uh, yet than being in this life. This is, of course, the great hope that we have. But. I think we have to also see something else which is true in this situation. When there are cases in which the children apparently do not agree with the evil of their parents and do separate themselves, they do not suffer the consequences of their parents. And we, will we see this several times in Scripture. And what is interesting is it is the case of Korah is the case of Korah. He and the 250 who stood with him dared to stand in the presence of God burning incense when it was not their right to do so, but they dared to do it. And as the ground opened up and swallowed Dathan and Abiram and their tents and everything they had in Korah's tent, although Korah wasn't there, he was over at the tabernacle, uh, everything went in. At the same time it would seem, or shortly thereafter or shortly before, we don't know, but the fire of the Lord came forth from the tabernacle and fried them, all of them, just like that, they were gone. But what we discover is something very interesting in the midst of all of this. Korah's sons did not die in this judgment. Let me turn to the 26th chapter of Numbers. Beginning at verse 9, uh, God has commanded Moses to take another census. This is, of course, later in the Exodus. The first census was taken at the beginning of the book of Numbers. Now this is the later census that was taken. So they're counting everybody. And when they're counting the tribe of, of Reuben, we read in verse 9, And the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, and Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram who were called by the congregation who contended against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men so that they became a warning. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. What we find is something very interesting about this. The sons of Korah go on to become sacred musicians serving the tabernacle. And let me just read a couple of lines to you. Psalm 42, for the choir director, a maskil for the sons of Korah. Psalm 44, for the choir director, a maskil for the sons of Korah. Same for 45. 46, a psalm of the sons of Korah. 47, a psalm for the sons of the sons of Korah. 48, the same. 49, the same. Obviously, the sons of Korah were a very different stripe than their father. It is not a law, either genetically or spiritually, that the father who sins or the mother who sins will also produce children who sin. It may happen, and that's what God was speaking to in Exodus chapter 34. But at the same time, it may not happen. And God is able to preserve. And the sons of Korah obviously rejected what their father had done and walked in a different direction because not only did they not die in, in, in this, this cataclysm, but they later would even uh, be leaders of the singing of Israel and would have psalms which were in effect said to be of them or dedicated to them. So this is a great sign of hope in the midst of a tragic situation. And what it helps us to understand is that we don't know what God is doing. God is at work, and, and, and that's what our, what our hope is. And certainly, our prayer should never cease for those that need God, well, for anyone for that matter, but particularly for those that need God, don't ever give up. Keep praying. As long as you have life and they have life, pray, because God can do His great work in bringing people to himself, no matter how far away they may seem to be at the moment. As you have heard so many times, how many people walking in Israel would have ever believed that the raging man called Saul of Tarsus <laughs> would actually become a believer? You know, that would have been to them like Satan being converted, you know. Uh, I'm certainly to the early church, uh, certainly the early church would have thought that. So we have to remember that God is almighty. Verse 36 of uh, Number 16. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eliezer the son of Aaron the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, <clears throat> for they are holy. And you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for the plating of the altar. Since they did not present them before the Lord, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be for a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord that he might not become like Korah and his company, just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. Korah and the 250 who followed him suffered the fate of those who arrogantly and brazenly challenge the obvious revealed will of God. 
God is into reminders, as we well know by now, don't we? Over and over again, God brings a reminder. In fact, the whole Testament is a reminder. How many times do you read through the Psalms or even some of the prophets and you come to that, that recounting of the history of Israel again? God wanted them to remember this great lesson. He didn't want them to forget. He wanted others of subsequent generations to be reminded of what happened this day. When the earth opened up and the, and the fire of the Lord blazed forth in justice and righteousness. And so God commanded Aaron's son, Eliezer, to collect the censers of the fallen rebels <clears throat> and to hammer them into sheets of bronze which be hung on the bronze altar of sacrifice. It could only be a reminder if it were hung on the bronze altar of sacrifice because if it were hung on any other implement, it would only be a reminder to the priest because only the bronze altar was visible uh, to the congregation because everything else was inside the tabernacle where only the priests could go. I think this was a rather grisly scene. We have a tendency to sanitize everything here, but I think what we need to recognize is this was not a pretty picture. Eliezer was commanded to go amongst these 250 blackened, possibly still smoking bodies, lying in total disarray before the tabernacle as they fell when the blaze of the Lord came forth, and to go amongst them and to find the censers that they had been holding as they offered incense to God with evil hearts. It would not have been a fun thing for Eliezer, Eliezer to do, to walk amongst the charred bodies trying to find these censers because he had to find all 250, 251 of them and bring them back. Now we might say, why Eliezer? Well, what happens to one in Israel who touches a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean. Thus Aaron could not do this because he was high priest and he had to be clean to minister before God and therefore Eliezer had the responsibility of going amongst the dead bodies, finding the censers because he could afford the time it took to go through the ceremonial cleansing which Aaron could not. And therefore Eliezer gathered all of these censers. I don't know how long it took. We don't know how big the censers are. They probably weren't terribly big. Probably there were those there to help him as he gathered them and they put them in a basket or whatever. They did. It would appear that what they did was dump the burning incense, which was still burning, obviously indicating this didn't happen days later, you know. This happened as <coughs> the air had barely cleared uh, from the smoke. They, they dumped probably dumped the uh, burning incense into a pot uh, as they found the censers, and then the burning embers were to be scattered outside the camp. The embers of the incense were unclean because they were offered in violation of the Word of God. There is a passage in Proverbs which says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination how much more when he brings it with evil intent. These men were an abomination because they were directly violating the word of God and then burning incense in a direct challenge to the ordained leadership of Israel. I mean, it wasn't just as if there were lots cast and, and God, you know, and Moses said, well, Aaron wins. 
mean, God had made it clear and God had ordained and, and God had come into the tabernacle and the blaze of his glory had shone forth all in response to the ordination of Aaron. There was no doubt he was God's choice. So they were trying to undo God's choice. So they came with evil intent. And so this burning incense was to be dumped outside the camp because it was unholy. But the censers were appropriate implements for the worship of the Lord. And so they were to be preserved, but not for their normal use or in their normal condition. As we read in this passage, they would no longer serve as censers, but as symbols. Symbols of the price paid by those who would dare to stand before God in their own merit. If this message could just be gotten out to the world, if people could just understand you don't dare try to stand before God in your own merit. I mentioned to you before, several months ago, a fellow I ran into once and he basically said, well, if that's the way God is, I'm going to tell him a thing or two when I stand before him. That comes from a misapprehension of who God is and who we are. You know, that, that's the sad tragedy of not really reading the scripture and understanding what it says. I mean, it makes it so abundantly evident who God is and who we are. Well, you know, we live in this land of rights and freedoms. You know. We have the inalienable rights, said John Locke, of life, liberty, and property. And of course, Jefferson changed it into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Meaning pursuit of happiness and property are the same thing. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> but no one is going to stand before God in his or her own merit. It, it was very, very important for Israel to realize that if they are going to come to... I mean, it, why was this thing hung on the bronze altar? Well, first, because that's what the only really implement besides the brazen bowl where the washing was occur, occurred, was the only implement that would be seen by, by the general population. And it was to serve as a reminder to all those who came to sacrifice that you must come to God in repentance, humility, and obedience. If they didn't, they would ultimately face the consuming fire of God as did these self-exalting would-be priests who were smoldering now in front of the tabernacle. Again and again, Israel was reminded, and by extension we are reminded, because we're supposed to know these things from Scripture, that we must come to God on His terms. There are no alternatives. There are no options but His terms. Our relationship to God is not based upon what we think is right, but upon what God has declared is true. That's why those who are ignorant of Scripture have no grounds to talk about what it is to have faith or what faith it is to have. And that's why there are Christians around who claim that, well, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism... Uh, you know, the Muslim faith, what difference does it really make as long as you're faithful in following your beliefs? It makes a great deal of difference. It makes a great deal of difference. It's an arrogant and foolish person who thinks that he or she can manipulate the Almighty. Uh, that's why, you know, it, I don't know who created the idea of God as a kind of an old gray-haired grandfather. Michelangelo didn't create it. It was before him. 
a gray-haired grandfather who sits up in a rocking chair, you know, just looking down paternally at all these poor people down here who really don't know what they're doing and it's okay. Uh, you know, everything will all turn out in the end, you know, pantheology, that everything will pan out in the end. I think to say that such a person is playing with fire is not just to use a figure of speech, but is to describe a fatal reality. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in eternity. Not all who defy God are burned to a crisp, as the followers of Korah were. And not all are eaten up by the ground, but all will stand before God in the same condition, naked, defenseless, without excuse, never having applied for or received the mercy of God. That's where, you know, human arrogance is so destructive. To be made in the image of God and to say, therefore, I am God, is, of course, to condemn oneself, to spend eternity with the one who said he would be like the Most High, Satan himself. God did not make hell for people. He made the lake of fire for Satan and his angels. And those who choose to follow him choose his fate. And this is the message, of course, that needs to be gotten out, that people need to understand. And we need to pray towards that end. Beginning at verse 41, we read an, another absolutely incredible account. But on the next day, it doesn't say next month, next year, on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. These godly men. <laughs> I don't know if, if you could possibly put yourselves in the sandals of Moses and Aaron, but it's kind of like, ah, what? What are you guys saying? Don't you ever learn anything? And it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned towards the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. This is the next day. Then they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. The big question is, how foolish can people be? And the answer is, incredibly foolish. <laughs> what really does God have to do? to produce humility, faith, and obedience. What does he have to do? Do we ever extrapolate any of this into our own lives? What does he have to do? Because God is not just going to sit up there and say, oh, well, 
He didn't want to learn that lesson. God doesn't give up. The Spirit of God is ever on our trail. Thank God He is. Makes life a little uncomfortable at times, especially for those of us who are a little hard-headed, self-willed. It's obvious in this situation that God had to deal rather harshly with Israel. It just belies <coughs> the belief that some people have that, that God is just some kind of, uh, you know, cotton candy salesman. That, uh, you know, God is just gently going around hoping that people will believe in Him. And if they don't, oh well, that's okay. You know, we, we don't see the fire of the Lord burning forth and cooking 16,000 people today in one thing. But, you know, things are happening all the time. And, and people are suffering in all kinds of calamities. And, you know, we don't know what's behind them. We just call these, well, the insurance company call, often calls them an act of God. You know, a tornado comes through and rips up a town. I'm not saying by any means here that the people who die in a tornado are being judged by God. But I'm just saying we don't know what's behind what's going on. There are spiritual forces at work. I, I, I think that if we could suddenly be given the eyes of Elisha's servant, you know, and we could suddenly see what was going on, we would be amazed at the spiritual warfare that is going on every corner of this world all the time. And, and I think we'd be awakened to the fact that, that that encounter we had on the freeway, that that blow up we had with our boss, that that explosion we had in our household, that that, that situation, that there was, that there were spiritual forces at work in that. And I think it's happening all the time. I don't think we're on cruise control here, you know, automatic pilot going through here because, you know, we've given our hearts to Christ and we're doing His will. We've got the job He wants us to have and we're, we're reading our little devotional every morning and therefore everything is hunky-dory. Oh. Put ourselves in Moses and Aaron's place. Moses and Aaron are doing the will of God, and yet it seems like all hell is pouring on them all the time. I mean, they're being obedient. What's happening? Wham, wham. They're constantly being accused of, of doing wicked things and of destroying the nation and wanting to exalt themselves. We have to look at it from that perspective. They're doing the will of God, and yet they're being hammered. Well, it's often what happens, isn't it? The closer you try to walk with God, the harder you get hammered. Because the evil one's not real pleased with you. You know, if you're trying to do the will of God. And then if you're, if you're a Christian and you try to walk away from God, you also get hammered. But you're hammered by God because he wants to bring you back in the line. It's much better to be hammered by the evil one than by God. Because there's nothing the evil one can do about God hammering you. But there's everything God can do about your situation. So I think we have to see, I mean, I think it was a cauldron here of evil spirits and angels. I don't know, you want to call it a dogfight here, but I mean, this thing is going on here while the congregation is standing there, focusing on Moses and Aaron and saying, you are the men who've caused this tragedy. How many pastors have suffered that? When the congregation has come and said, you're responsible for this split in the congregation, or you're responsible for this, that, and they get hounded out of the pulpit because of a congregation that is being led by vile and evil people. They may not look that way, but they're, they're listening to the voice of the evil one. How many times has that happened? I would say thousands of times in the 2,000 years. I mean, probably countless times in the 2,000 years of the history of the church. I mean, this is very applicable to us and, and to our situation today. It's not just a 3,500-year-ago uh, event. 
that we look back at, you know, historically and try to apply a little historiography to this thing. I mean, this is, this is life. This is reality. This spiritual warfare hasn't changed a bit. Actually, it's multiplied because there are 5.8 billion people in the world today to be involved in spiritual warfare, not just a few hundred thousand or a few million as there were in the days when Moses lived. Well, let me end with this. In Proverbs 13, 24, we read, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. God is a loving father. God loved his people Israel. Therefore, he will bring on them the rod of discipline. It will be painful. It will cost the lives of 14,700 people. H how many liberal Christians would say that God was fair and just in that? You know, they'd accuse God of, of being mean. In fact, many people accuse God in the Old Testament of, of being psychotic because of the things he does to defend, to jealously defend his name. Not understanding at all that it's for the good of the people. And that's what God is. He's a benevolent autocrat. He rules absolutely, but he rules for the good of every single one of us. Beyond the good we even perceive for ourselves. And that's what he does for Israel. And these hard things happen for their good. Well, next Sunday we'll pick up with that passage and uh, move on into the 17th chapter, which is a very <laughs> interesting little chapter. I mean, it's a description of God's mercy to this people in what you read about in the 17th chapter of Numbers.